businesses would actually do that and say, you know, you guys are the new guys. Let us know if you see anything that doesn't fit with what we are trying to be, who we are and what the organisation is as a whole and who we're trying to project within the world. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. G'day. Welcome back to the Rotary Wing Show, the podcast where we get to hang out, talk helicopters, and cover some of the topics from right around the the helicopter industry. In episode 80, we are getting a chance to discuss the impact of culture, how it affects and and impacts on safety and performance. And to help me, I'm very lucky to have Natalie Johnson on today to be able to chat with us. Natalie flew squirrels, sea kings, the MRH-90 helicopters with the Royal Australian Navy and was a fleet air arm flight safety officer. She's also been an, a squadron executive officer, a flight commander, and along the way also an instructor. These days, Natalie is working outside of defence, helping companies and organisations to deal with regulatory frameworks, safety, and with a, a special interest in influencing positive cultures in the workforce. Natalie, welcome to the show and thanks very much for being willing to, to have a chat. And uh, yeah, we've got some great notes there to go through. But I thought we might start with uh, high school. So when, when I was doing high school, yeah, I, none of the schools around me had any option for um, anything aviation related. So was that a pretty common thing or you were just lucky where you were? In Western Australia where I grew up, there was a couple of schools. Actually, it was just our school in Kent Street High in Perth that offered um, an aeronautics program. So at Narragin Senior High School, so it's just a country school and it was just due to a very um, passionate, one of our um, metalwork teachers, Rod Slater, and he developed and brought in the aeronautics program from Kent Street into our high school. So it was an elective, so non-ATAR um, subject, but it's changed to an ATAR subject now. So I was able to do that as part of um, my year 11 and 12 elective. And so you get to go flying on school time or was that... Uh... Afterwards, we get scholarship. Yeah, so unfortunately, because it was just an elective, we mostly just did theory and bits and pieces, but Rod had his own plane. So the first time I ever got to go flying was in year 11 with, the, with him in the back of his aircraft. Awesome. And, and yeah, you obviously did well enough that you picked up a scholarship from it. Yeah, that was um, at the beginning of my year 12. There was an advert for it and Rod encouraged all of us in the class to apply. So we went in and applied. And yeah, so it shows my age when I sat with ANSET and the uh, West Australian Government Scholarship. But they, um, it, was really, it was really a good opportunity because it was probably the only opportunity for me to actually get flying because, you know, my parents being farmers and not having much land, it was a pretty tight those in those years to actually have any spare cash. So it was a great opportunity for me to actually get airborne and see what it was actually like to be flying. So have you worked that was anything that wasn't aviation? Did you go straight from school into into flying then with uh, defence or how'd that work? 
so I went straight from so straight from school I went through to Australian Defence Academy in Canberra and did my uni degree. You can go straight in direct entry, but because I was only seventeen, they encourage you to go through ADSA because of just maturity levels and things like that to handle pilot's course. So I went through and did my Bachelor of Science in Physics at ADSA in Canberra. So that was my first sort of trip away, my first trip to the eastern states. First trip in a large aircraft, all those sorts of firsts happened when I joined the Navy. And then um, after that, you then go on to your flying training. So the, the training continuum has changed a little bit since I went through. We went, started at um, Pierce in Western Australia on the PC-9 and then um, on to helicopter training at ADF Hilo School in Canberra. And that was on squirrels? Yeah, that was on squirrels. So we went through on the squirrel, which was it was good fun actually going in and out of Canberra on that. It's now they've brought the ADF Hilo schools pretty much down at 723 Squadron with uh, a joint project with Boeing, which they do on the EC135 now, which is obviously a much more modern twin engine aircraft. Yeah, it's amazing going, you know, from scratch essentially, because I don't know if they'll do uh, whatever the equivalent of the CT4 is. But yeah, first helicopter training in a, uh, a 135. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. going to be a lot of people jealous. <laughs> I know, I know. But it does make you really appreciate the opportunities. Like even when I went through the opportunities of defence, because, you know, you my, my smallest aircraft I've ever flown is a squirrel. And so even that has a lot more to offer than a lot of other aircraft and most helicopter pilots you know the first aircraft they get is is a robinson or something that size because you know cost wise and that sort of stuff it's most economical and the the better option to do all your flying training in but you know we get good opportunities in defense to actually start in something quite advanced and navy in australia is quite different because quite often you're operating single aircraft wherever you go so, so how's the training program work for that? Because most other places you would, you know, go and have sort of other people around. You'd work as a co-pilot, get mentoring, and sort of work your way up in a group setting. But for me, it's it seems for Navy at least you are operating alone or at least detached quite oper- quite uh, often. So how how's it work? You finish your, your squirrel course. What's the training program then to to get you ready to to go out to sea essentially by yourself or as a as a detachment yeah normally as you when you first go out to sea there's always someone there who's more senior so even if you are the single pilot when you go you always have a flight commander who is um might be the air warfare officer who's on board who used to be the old observers they will be on board as the senior more experienced person but pretty much the navy training as you go through your helicopter training and then you get a little bit of time after that to hone your skills, it's very much concentrated on captaincy skills and good decision-making. Like in the past, and, and it probably will happen in the future, some people have failed the Navy course at sort of either ADFHS or at 723 Squadron flying squirrels doing their helicopter conversion because they lack the captaincy skills. You need to be able to step out of the squirrel um, and into a larger aircraft type and make the right decisions, and that's a lot that's actually a big ask of a lot of the young people we put through. So that's probably the biggest thing. So we expect a fairly high level of maturity. Um, and so that's what a lot of the concentration is on those communication skills and non-tech skills and things like that. Because, you know, it doesn't matter, as you said, like you can always work towards your hands and feet and getting all that sort of stuff right. And there's a lot of practice in that. But with the captaincy skills, you, you're often making mistakes along the way, but your crew behind you, you always also have experienced crewmen in the back. 
so the aircrew in the back are invaluable in their ability to give you advice because they've seen and flown with so many other people. So it really is a bit of a team effort, but you do get that guidance when you first step through. And there is a big push on captaincy, decision-making, understanding, immediate risk management, being able to communicate what you need and all those sorts of things come through. So can you, can you give like a really granular example of that as opposed to, you know, I guess every, every flight you're pretty well assessed on everything anyway. But what would be one example where I guess you try and set someone up to make that captaincy decision and observe what they do? As an instructor, so when we went through and I did my instructor's courses, you, and it sounds terrible, but you did try and set them up almost. So you would, there would be a, like a, a pad you wanted to land into or if you were doing your at-sea time, there was something that wasn't quite right. And as an experienced pilot and someone who's seen it before, you know, knew there was sort of maybe two options they could take. But the textbook may have had sort of the third option. For example, if you've got a, a, a pad that favours facing flying into it, travelling north-south, but there's a reasonably strong wind that runs sort of east-west, but depending on the shape of the pad, you might actually need them because of things like escape routes and things like last day point of landing and potentially if you're doing a limited power operation is you have to accept the crosswind to land in the north-south direction. Whereas in a helicopter, we tend to initially, all the textbooks and everything say, you know, you should always go into wind, being into wind, and it's all about wind. But having that captaincy decision to actually make the correct choice. And you'd set them up in little ones like that as you go. You'd also, we would also have a lot of mentoring. So although we weren't assessed on it, if we went away on a trip or we did something as a single pilot, they would send a senior crewman and the air crewman would come back and report back and give you feedback on your capacity decision making. And they'd let us go and do fairly, like we'd do trips, we'd go down to Sale or down to Cerberus or we'd take the aircraft down to Adelaide and the instructors would potentially fly in different aircraft to the students, but they could still obviously monitor what we were doing and what decisions we were making. It, it would give you some freedom, almost like a little bit of freedom to hang ourselves if we didn't make the right decisions. And I guess, yeah, in a really fairly safe environment before you uh, get yeah, operational exactly. out, out at sea. I, yeah. I've, people in listening long enough, I'm sure I've mentioned it before, yeah, some of the, the most challenging flying I ever did was the, the night flying off, off the ships. Like that was, you know, that's when I felt like I was really, really working hard. So I've got a huge respect for, for you guys <laughs> operating off the ships. How, <laughs> what was your first deployment or where'd you go? Oh, God, let me think. Um, I went, uh, the first one was Solomon Islands. So back. In let me try and think what year, probably 99, maybe 2000. I can't remember. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it was like we did Solomon Islands. So that was was a great trip. Uh, it was my first experience being at sea. I was in, we were actually had a two aircraft deployment. Um, that was when there was a lot of unrest in the Solomons between the Malaitans and the main island. So there was a bit of uh, conflict and stuff going on there. And we were there to support the Australian Federal Police contingent and all the Australian peacekeepers and aid workers there. So we went over for that. But on the way there, we actually had to do some um, humanitarian aid because the volcano had destroyed a whole bunch of islands, uh, water supplies. So we provided water in to a whole bunch of areas that probably hadn't been a car, let alone a helicopter. So that was a bit interesting. And, yeah, it was a great experience to go over and do that sort of stuff. And we did some interesting stuff, you know, you talk about flying in at night time. And we didn't have night vision goggles at the time. So we had a 
like call it a low level landfall approach. So we would approach using the radar in the Sea King across along the water to the beach to find a pad on the beach and land in it in the dark, which is always a bit exciting when you know, you can't actually see where you're going. So it's um yeah, we there was some interesting stuff and it really expanded my horizon and understood A, what you could do with the aircraft. And we had a lot more freedom because there's no air traffic control out there. So we could just kind of fly at whatever level we wanted to and sort of at least stretch the envelope of the aircraft and see, you know, within the normal parameters, but actually get to use it and, and move it around a little bit and use it what it was made for, which was really good. Yeah, it's a big aircraft. Like you see pictures, it's not until you stand next to a seeking where you, you sort of realise <laughs> it's big when, it, when it's in the back of a hangar or a ship, it uh, it fills it up. Yeah, exactly. So, and it, it, someone said, oh, you know, what do you feel about it? So a lot of people who flew the Seahawk and stuff like that, because they right, were the premier, you know, spicy aircraft and all that sort of stuff. But I used to love flying my seeking, the truck. So it's a really nice thing, a bus driver. And it, you actually got to do a lot of really cool stuff, like, you know, fill the back of the aircraft up with food because, you know, trying to get it up. So, you know, you look back through the cabin and you can't see anything but lettuce and bread. And there's a little hole for you up the front and the crewman at the back just so we could get it all onto the ship. So it was, uh, we sort of, you know, we did all that sort of stuff and we had great capability in that aircraft. So it was a great learning experience for all of us on board. Now, when uh, we're in ships, we're often joking, or people tell us that the, the pilot on board a, a Navy ship is the highest paid person on the uh, on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to talk about that setup? Um, yeah, so pretty much because of the pay scale that the pilots sit on as you go up in experience, you do tend to be one of the highest paid on board. I was a fairly junior flight commander um, and still a lieutenant and not in the zone for promotion to lieutenant commander, and I went on HMAS success as a flight commander, and the CEO actually sat across the dining table at me and looked at me and said, oh, I suppose you get paid more than me, Nat, and he was a commander and had been at sea for years. And I just looked at him and said, sir, I probably don't get paid more than you, but I looked at the executive officer who's the second in command and said, I get paid more than you, though. So, um, yeah, there's a few um, raised eyebrows and cranky looks when I said that, but it's, it was one of those things, I think, because we cost so much to train. Um, and also because, you know, a lot of the times there's the market outside in, you know, the airlines and toll and those sorts of things, there's always a bit of a pull for, particularly for helicopter pilots now, out of the forces. So they need to pay a reasonable amount. I think the seamen officers get, do get a bit cranky when the pilots get on board to, um, and we all get paid more than they do. Yeah, and I feel it's a bit rough for some of those guys because of the amount of responsibility they have. But, uh, yeah, anyway, that's, that's, that's why it's <laughs> yeah. great. The, uh, yeah, the sea on the ship doesn't get a lot of sleep, but he gets, doesn't get paid quite as much as he probably should. So what were some of the titles you had going through in, in, in your career in terms of job titles? So I started as a divisional officer, really, as my first. In, like, we, in the Navy, we do it a little bit different to the other services is when we go, I think Army's fairly similar as well, but as we go through, is we have secondary duties. You're not just a pilot. You have to do and take the load of the other parts of the workforce that run through. Like we don't have people who are non-flying to do all of those. You just do it while you do your flying job. So I was a divisional officer to start with, which meant I looked after at the time about 50 sailors. And when I went through, I had to write all their reports and everything like that as well. So that took up a fair amount of time. And then from there, I went on to into the operations department. So that was really great. Went into there and did some of that. And then I progressed on to when I went and did my instructor's course, I was an instructor, I was programmer, operations officer, training officer. 
then Fleet Aviation Safety Officer, which is my main non-flying job. I did do a one short stint as staff officer to the Commodore for about six months and then went from there flight commander and then executive officer of the 808 Squadron was my last job. So a few. There's probably a couple of small ones in there that I've missed, but that's most of them. So what I remember is there's two things. One, what do you reckon your average hours were on a on an average year? I guess some of those desk jobs would have put a hole in it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what was the sort of flying rate you were doing? It kind of depended on the squadron and stuff you were at. Like obviously when I was instructing and stuff, we'd had some, we'd fly a fair bit. And even on 817, when you were deployed and if you were away, you'd get, you'd push sort of 70-hour months. We're usually around the 200 to 250 hours a year is pretty standard possibly then up to 300 to 350 on a good year so it's and also like a, a lot of airline pilots or sort of the, the um, air force guys who fly transport and stuff like that going what it's nothing i said yeah but you got to think about it you're in a helicopter so you know we've got to refuel at least in a squirrel you can only go for an hour and a half or so before you need to refuel and a seeking and MRH, you're looking at sort of five hours max, but you only usually refuel to two and three. So there's, it's a lot of flying if you think of 250 hours at two hours each for each sortie. So yeah, but, but outside, like um, you know, people who've just been in the civilian world all the way through doing tour flights and stuff, they're thinking, oh wow, especially mustering. <laughs> gonna, and yeah. it's just it's just the fact you end up doing so many other different things. Um, but uh, yeah, there's uh, lots of different jobs that, to do when you when you're not actually um, flying. I forget. Oh, yeah. yeah. Second, second question was in terms of Navy fleet. So, fleet safety officer. How big was the yep. Navy aircraft fleet in numbers? So, I looked after the four squadrons then. So, seven two five squadron, which is the Romeo training squadron, had just started. And they were in the US at the time when I started. We had eight oh eight squadron, which was running the MRH ninety, which were quite new. Um, eight one six still running the Seahawk, the the Bravo. And 723 Squadron on the Squirrel. And we had a not quite, it wasn't quite a squadron yet, but the UAVs were just starting up as well. So it was quite a lot of. So you're talking 60, 60 aircraft? Yeah, it'd be something like that, which we had that. So I pretty much oversaw each of the squadrons had their own safety officer. And I we went through and oversaw their work and what they did and then managed the safety management system for the whole, for the Commodore, for the Fleet Air Arm. So we put in all the policy, so we did all the policy, we reviewed all the reporting, we tried to get trending data, we analysed survey data, and provided training education conferences, also just guidance for the, for the safety officers who didn't have as much training as, as the core guys in my group did. And there was a few of us there, and when, while I was there also they brought in the Work Health and Safety Act 2011, so we had to, we had to integrate that into then how we did operations because previous to that and people probably weren't aware defense was often considered exempt and was allowed to have an exemption from the work health and safety requirements but when the new work health and safety act came out they brought that in and defense lost its requirement uh, ability to be exempt we became part of that we became a responsible person pretty much and had to then comply with that act so because of that, we had to integrate it within to our safety management system instead of having a separate one because it made more sense to us to have, instead of having a work health and safety one on one side and an aviation one on the other, although Navy was doing a bigger Navy was doing, which I say, when I say big Navy, I mean ships, 
they were doing theirs, they brought in, they had their own safety management system they were bringing in, which we had to also kind of comply with. But we integrated a lot of work health and safety into the aviation system that we use. So it's, um, yeah, it was quite a extensive. It was a bit of a busy couple of years and trying to keep track of all of that that was happening at the time. Yeah, no, you can have that. That's fine. <laughs> I'm glad someone else is looking after that stuff. All right, well, let's talk about the guess what we we we're going to chat about, which I guess ties in on the back end of that thing is is culture. Yep. So I, I guess going through those positions and uh, in the consulting role and education role you're doing now, I guess that's a big feature, and you might talk about you know one of the, the sort of key uh, crashes that the Navy had. But yeah, can you take us through what culture is and and how how we influence it? Yeah, sure. So I'll start with basically, so when I first went through in my first couple of postings through 817 Squadron and stuff, I didn't really, it wasn't really something we thought about. It wasn't something that was big in the Navy. It wasn't something that was kind of talked about much and, and it wasn't talked about much externally either. So I think, you know, back in the 90s, early 2000s and things like that, late 90s, early 2000s, it was not something that was big. Risk management was the big one then because I was out in the first introduction of risk management into the Navy. So that was into the fleet air arm anyway. So it was very interesting. So that was a big catch thing then. That was a big go-to place and that was going to fix everything. But um, after um, 2005, when we had the uh, seeking crash up at NIAS, that kind of brought culture and the post of the, the Board of Inquiry post that brought culture into the forefront of everyone's mind and, and how that affects how we behave. I kind of look at culture as it's the behaviours, attitudes and values and thoughts that bring a group of people together. So it, it, you go wherever you go, there's always a culture at school. You know, you watch my kids see their little ones, their groups of people and friends, there's teachers, there's sporting clubs, and you'll see it change depending on what people you're with and what their values and beliefs are and what the values and beliefs of the organisation you're in are. Changing a culture, whether that be a safety culture or organisational culture, takes a long time. Fortunately, it's like, um, and you know this, having kids is having kids is that if you're trying to get them into a good habit, it takes weeks and months. If they get into a bad habit, it takes a night, especially when you're trying to train them to sleep <laughs> in their own bed and all that sort of stuff. So one night of them being sick and you letting them, you know, have a cuddle in your bed means you've just destroyed four weeks of hard work. It, and it's the same with organisational culture. Sounds weird, but, you know, because usually in organisational culture that's negative, you'll have a really strong influencer. There'll be a couple of individuals, usually someone who's experienced or been there for a while, and that kind of, this is the way we do it around here, don't do what I do, do what I say, those sorts of things. And they get and acknowledge, they get immediate benefits from their basically poor behaviour because there's some sort of shortcut, they get to go home early. Or, or, and in the case of the 817 squadron prior to the accident, the behaviours that we were developing, and I was part of that group, because I only just left the squadron six months earlier, I was part of that group, but everything we did, we got rewarded for. If we said, oh, we can't do this, we're too busy, and they said, no, you will do it. And we went, okay. And then we did a great job at it. So we got rewarded for it and congratulated and said, how wonderful are you guys? You guys are awesome. And we kept winning the trophy that Navy has to say, you know, how good a squadron is. And it basically reinforced those negative behaviours and without realising it, created a really 
Because that would have been the opposite of what that was set up for. Because obviously, you know, yeah. awards and things like that are to promote a particular uh, sort of behaviour or, or culture. Yeah, exactly. So it's and that's and that's the thing is that because it wasn't really thought of and it wasn't really something that defence or navy or fleet air arm or squadron had looked at and how that influences what we do. The behaviour was allowed to continue. The maintenance guys, because of a bunch of things, you know, lack of resources, time constraints, the pressure on them to do it, they did take a bunch of shortcuts. You know, they had to use the wrong size Zeus fasteners because we couldn't get the right size in Australia. That was, you know, but it wasn't written down anywhere. It was just the way they changed and the way they did things. So it became that culture of being able to do that without really realising it. And and we never talked so much about we did a lot in in pilots, like in air crew, we've been doing crew resource management and all variants of that for a long time. But in from a maintenance point of view, that was never even thought of. Human factors in maintenance wasn't really something defence or navy had looked at. And when it came to post this accident, they went, Oh, wait a minute. So we don't prior to the accident we hadn't trained any of our maintainers or anything like that on all the greater workforce on things like distraction which you guys talked about in your last podcast and things like you know interruptions things like you know fatigue you know personalities and and conflicts within that and dealing with all those things you know human performance limitations and that sort of stuff they didn't get taught on any of those things post the accident they brought in a massive big human factors maintenance area management program that brought in things like the dirty dozen and stuff like that to enable the maintenance team to realise that potentially the way they were doing business was not actually effective and it massively affected the culture within the organisation, which then could have a flow-on effect. So can you can you measure culture? What sort of you know KPIs if you talk about that sort of stuff? How do you how do you break down what a, what a culture is? Pretty hard to measure because any sort of culture, it moves and changes depending on what's going on. Like you, you do, we do, I had a great psychologist who used to work for me, Dr. Rob Foster Lee. He's now with CASA. He's he's a great guy and he worked with me for a long time when I was the ABS and safety officer. And he always used to say that you can't really measure culture itself because it changes all the time and it depends. So we used to just be able to do we used to do what's called a snapshot or climate survey. So you have a look at and the questions that you pose will take a snapshot in time, but you have to put it in context of when you're doing it. Like if you're doing the cultural survey or you're doing a survey like that straight after Christmas break and everyone's had a nice break, had a great time, there's been no call out, there's been no issues and everyone's rested, you will get a different response to the same questions as if you did it in November after a really busy, hard year. So does that make sense? In the yeah, sort yeah. of context, it changes depending on what's happening around you. So you can look and see and take a measure of the organisational climate at a time, but you have to put the context around it and see. But the biggest measure, I think, for any kind of culture is actually just that communication piece, is talking to people as you go around and actually getting into your workforce and speaking to people and and kind of it sounds a bit weird but watching the way they interact with other people and how they do it because that's the best way of actually seeing is as if you're a manager or or owner of a business or something like that that's the best way for you to see 
how the culture is within your organisation and also just the feedback of other people, feedback of clients, feedback of students. If a client has had a good experience and they've been satisfied and all their needs have met and there's been, if there's been a conflict, there's been a great conflict resolution and normally that will potentially indicate you've got a positive culture going on, particularly if your workforce is also happy. If your workforce, if the client says that, but your workforce is unhappy, there's something that's not working properly. There's there's something, there's a shortcut happening. There's something, you know, that's not sitting well. People are not being listened to potentially, and that's going to set up for a negative culture. Awesome. I guess as we go through, because it's, it's such a fuzzy kind of subject, like it's very hard to put it in, in a box and, and define yeah. it. So I guess what I'm going to try and tease out as we go through is to take it from that sort of fuzzy concept into what people can actually do in a business or a, you know, in a yeah. flight line to sort of break that down. So I guess as we go through, that's where I'm going to try and poke you towards, I guess. <laughs> uh, just because it is such a, you know, you say the word culture and it's, it's a massive thing, but I guess like anything, yeah. we're trying to break it down into tools we can we can use. Um, so we've touched on, like you spoke before about key influences in, I guess, what we first talked about, it was like a negative light. Yeah. But culture can be, you know, I guess good or bad. So some of those key people in an organisation then who promote good culture just from their behaviours and their examples. So so what are you looking for in someone like that? Like uh, who, what, what, who's someone, not necessarily a, a person, but what are the characteristics that you would want to have in a, especially an aviation business, as someone who's going to be a good role model and going to bring good culture with them? Yeah. Okay, that's a really good question. So I think the biggest thing is, is there's a couple of things. So the word respect comes straight into my mind as soon as you say those things, is you need someone who has respect for themselves, respect for those people who work around them, respect for the client, whoever that is, and also respect for the rules and procedures and process. And it sounds a little bit weird, but a lot of times that you'll see negative cultures come through because that people don't have an understanding or a respect for that, the process and procedures that are put in place because normally they're put in place for a reason and there could be improvements to that. So you need someone who has respect for all those things but also who is not, let's say, not shy or not, is, has got confidence in their own knowledge and their own thoughts that they are able to bring new ideas forward and then for that person to succeed and you to foster that person, you need to also then listen to those new ideas or listen to those reports or listen to what they're saying and then provide them with feedback to say whether anything has been actioned for it and if not, why not? So they then feel like something has happened. The biggest issue that you have is you'll get someone who is good at communicating their thoughts and what's happening and does respect all those things so therefore they have a bit of buy-in with the culture you want to develop is if you don't provide them with feedback of what's happened for any of their ideas or any of their reports they've written, say there was this minor incident, they've written a report and they don't hear anything else from it. If you don't provide them with the feedback, then they will know, they'll tend to go, well, what's the point? And you hear that a lot through a lot of organisations where you see people, well, what's the point? Why, why bother bringing that up? Because no one's going to do anything about it. And that's a big failing in defence, like in particularly, you know, in Navy and stuff, because we are so busy and so many, everyone's got so many things on. Sometimes it's really difficult to give that feedback back. And it means that people will stop and, and feel like there's no point in doing it. So 
it needs to be you can can have a fantastic individual that has you know strong beliefs that got good values and that align with whatever the company or organization has and they have that they have a good understanding of things like risk management as well and you know they don't have to be your best pilot and they don't have to be your best instructor or your best worker or whatever they don't necessarily have to be excelling but they have to be confident and competent i think that probably sums it up <laughs> you know in, in 350 words or less <laughs> That's all good. You spoke about the importance of, uh, I guess, following regulations. So document-wise, yeah, how important is it good having a good set of actual workable um, instructions or whatever that format they take? Because I imagine a lot of this culture stuff, it starts down a slippery slope <laughs> where people will, like the, the way their processes or the regulations are set out make things a little bit more friction and so people will start to shave off around the edges. Is that, yeah. uh, is that in some of those case studies, is that how things go downhill? Yeah, a lot of them. Like you, you see a lot that the, the changes in regulations, although I will let something like in the, obviously all the investigations haven't been completed with the 737 max and all that sort of stuff that's come out. Some of that's because, you know, the FAA allowed Boeing greater flexibility and allowed them to do some of the internal stuff that potentially the full process of what was expected wasn't followed. And there was no fault of any particular individual or potentially the organisation. It was just what they'd set out and the culture to get things done and to get the aircraft out on time and all those sorts of things um, will come into it. And there's lots and lots of case studies. Like you look at all the NASA ones and the Nimrod and the Seeking crash and all that sort of stuff. A lot of that has come from a, list, a significant list of complicated processes that don't all align. So you go into organisations and they'll have, for example, you've, you've got processes. If you look at the international standards for quality, security, environmental and personal safety, they're all pretty much the same, but everyone feels the need to put different processes around each of those different um, headings, which means that for someone who's working on the ground, trying to find which process or reporting system or that they're supposed to follow in any one scenario is so challenging. They either A, don't bother, or B, get it wrong, and then it doesn't go to the right place. The MRH-90 going through that when the guys transitioned from seeking another aircraft type into that aircraft was a great challenge for all those guys because all of the maintenance documentation was electronic. So you think, oh, well, shouldn't that make it easier? Well, it should, but unfortunately they would then have to step down from the one page. So think of a, of a web page kind of thing, and then you click on a link that takes you to another page, and then to follow the process, you have to click on another link that takes you to another page, and then there's an amendment that takes you to a different page, and they do that process, and somehow they have to, without missing a step, get back to the first page it, the, you know, in, while they're doing the maintenance. It becomes, if you have complicated things like that, it makes it difficult for people to actually do business. So simplicity and reducing layers is probably the big key. And we tend to, if a new regulation or a new process or a new something comes out from CASA or some information comes out from the regulator from a WHS point of view or something, we tend to add something. There's a, a thing that, oh, there's a new process, quick add, we've got to add something, quick, we've got to have a new thing for this. 
But instead of doing that, my advice to any organisation out there is actually to go back through and have a look at your documentation and go, do what we, does what we already do actually meet this requirement? Because we don't necessarily, you probably find you might need to add a sentence and not a whole new process. So it's, I think it's, it, we do tend to add and it'd be good to go through and actually potentially delete or revise and refine. People out there be clapping because <laughs> I, can't, I can't think of any kind of book or uh, process follow whichever ever gets reduced and only gets added to. And I think especially in general aviation in Australia, like legislation overwhelm at the moment, it's uh, you've got to work hard to actually keep your head over everything and, and comply with everything yeah. uh, just as things get added. And I, I think CASA has that as one of their, their risks, at least the – you know, the, the general operational crew yeah. rather than too high is just that idea of uh, how things are, are written and uh, the, the complexity of, of documents. Yeah, and it's important as well, like you said, how things that are written, like particularly if you look at just culture and communication and stuff like that, if the, each of the documents need to be written in the same language as well. So if you've got, unfortunately, you try and farm it out or different people change through your organisation, you'll find that some of your documents are written by one person which read differently to another one, So, which means that then you have to then try and interpret like which which bit and how they mean things and the way they use their words. So it's having that consistency in language as well is pretty important, particularly if you've got anyone who comes from a, I'm going to use the word again, but if you think a different cultural background on when I talk about national identity kind of cultural backgrounds versus, you know, and, and having a consistency in language is so important, particularly for new students and things as well. All right, what, what are some of the, uh, I guess, the research and, and things coming out? What, what are the benefits then of having a, you know, a positive culture with as an actual focus rather than just sort of letting it form by itself? So organisations that are out there and, you know, you're obviously helping people go in and, and start to, to form a culture that, that they want to have. What, what are the safety benefits? There's loads of benefits, and it's not just on safety. So if you have a good culture, you might not stop you having accidents and incidents and things like that. Like it's not going to, you know, it's not it's not going to be anything that's going to fix everything. But what it, what you want to have is if you have a small incident, you want people to have the voice to the report it. Or if they've got a good idea for a piece of continuous improvement, to have that voice and ability to to speak about it and to change it and it's important to have your workforce, particularly if you've got an established workforce, to be part of establishing the culture you want to set up. So they actually have an influence and, and can contribute to it. It will create a better buy-in. And, and because of that, because you will get more people to, you know, report on things and talk about it, then you start to click into um, James Reason developed the five elements of the safety culture, which is basically to improve it. So you talk about the informed culture, reporting culture, learning culture, just culture and flexible culture. And, and if you have those things, so if you allow people to have that voice and then you pretty much tick off informed reporting and learning, a just culture is basically most people get, and I'll let people look that up, that's probably easier, is, is basically it's about a fairness of treatment. If you purposely make an intended action to go against something and do it, you will be, you will be dealt with. Like It's not basically a no blame. So there is accountability. So just culture has accountability. That's pretty easy to say it. And being flexible in any helicopter pilot's mind is we always have to be flexible because most people, no matter what you fly, is the route, the weather, the aircraft, the air traffic door, something will change from your plan from when you did your plan 
in the board, in the room to do your briefing and stuff will change and you will have flown something different by the time you get back. And we need to maintain that flexibility. So it builds in resilience, which is a big thing as well at the moment. So because of those things, then you'll start having, you potentially might identify more smaller incidents that will prevent you having a bigger accident. And importantly, in this day and age with work health and safety and stuff like that, if you have an incident that injures or has a potential to be a larger factor, you've got to report it to WHS, so um, to work health and safety. And if they deem necessary, they will come and investigate. I've been through a couple of investigations as Fleet Aviation Safety Officer and the XO of 808 Squadron. They've been through a couple of They are extensive and they go in a long way. But luckily for us, we had a good safety management system in place. We had all the paperwork behind it. We had all the processes there that we needed and we did a good, our own good safety investigation and they showed how to do it. And then with a had a look at it and said, well, actually, you guys have done all the right thing. This was an issue, but you've actually followed the correct procedure done and it was finished. If you don't have that sort of stuff set up and you don't have a good culture set up around that for people to be able to do that, then when they come in, it will take a lot of time, a lot of effort and a lot of money to actually provide them with the information they need, which then means you can't do your job as an organisation and produce your output you expect, which then hits the bottom line. So basically having a positive culture within your workforce um, and in your organisation and being a positive safety culture as well will may cost you a little bit of time to do the education training workshop but in the long run you will get better productivity out of your workforce you should have less turnover of people because it's a better place to work get a greater um, commitment and potentially a greater satisfaction from your clients so it really does I think hit the bottom line and I read a great article in Forge which is a Australian business magazine which um, the editor actually talks about how culture needs to be set up as the basically organisational culture needs to be able to be set up to foster change and innovation and things like that. You mentioned before that you got to get buying in from people so it's not a matter of you know coming out and saying hey here's our vision statement or here's our mission and, and putting some fancy things up on the wall but I don't know how, how much of that plays into it and, and, and where do you start that process of I guess top-down versus bottom-up buy-in. How do you juggle that? Yeah, the, the, the amount of times I think we've all been in a workforce where a new boss has come in and given you a really shiny vision, vision or mission statement and everyone's gone, yep, like what does that mean? Like how does that affect me? And, there's, and then it just kind of sits on the way, for, sits on the wall for three years until they move on and then nothing really happens. But it's it really is key that, I think if you're serious about actually creating a good culture and, and setting up within your workforce, you need to actually sit down and talk to your workforce about what they want the culture to look like, what they see the good and bad things are within your current culture, what they would need to improve. Because if it's – and it's kind of a bit of a – there still needs to be some top-down because there are some things that management or you know CEOs and, and owners of companies and stuff will want to have in there and that might not be in the forefront of the, the workers' minds, but they will need something. There will be some of that, but there needs to be – normally almost needs to be a bit of a feedback loop, like a, a circle of, of what we're going to have as our culture. And if you get the guys buy-in, then it means that it's not difficult to get them to do – 
the new process procedure and then it will be easier and the time it takes for the culture to change and to become what you want it to be will be less if people are into it and say, yeah, that's what I believe in too. Excellent. That's what I want. Therefore, I believe in it. I want. It's much easier to do that than that's what he says. I have to say that because that's what it says there. It, there's difference and it comes across in people's body language, it, the way they behave and things like that, not just their verbal communication. So I think the the, the boss's stamp, mission, vision without any input from anybody else just becomes a verbal communication kind of method, whereas the other one is like almost like a, a whole attitude change if they're they're bought into it and they're part of it. And I think that makes a huge difference. So can you, I guess, steal from or transport, uh, uh, you know, good cultures from other places? Like can you see things that people are doing or other organisations that are doing that, you know, work well for that culture and just bring them in? Or is it sort of every group of, of people will have to be sort of done their own different way like can you can you list a couple of really good companies not an aviation companies out there it could just be you know your, your typical you know big brand retail ones which have like a, a good you know what and i'm using air quotes there that you would consider a good culture can, can you go and borrow things from from what other companies are doing how, how do you sort of cross-pollinate i think you can like if you've got some like you've got an organization that you see is being really successful and things like that um you can actually borrow bits and pieces across like it's so hard I think to choose pick and choose because you say I'll say a company and then they'll be in the news next week it's having a bad <laughs> one so <laughs> the thing is is I think because like from a media point of view they do just show the shiny good stuff and then as soon as something bad goes then bang they're out there there are some stuff like I look at there are some sporting teams that you could pull stuff from um actually there's an organization that uh, Team Navy is part of, which is, and Defence do a lot of work with is Tickford Racing. They they actually embed a couple of our sailors and stuff within their racing team. And, and they actually have a really, they're a very high performance, high risk organisation. They've actually got some really good things. And a lot of it does come down to good communication and things like that. And there's things like that you can borrow. So if you're an organisation and you have a look at it and go, oh, I like the way they operate, what do they, and have a look at what they do. What do they do differently? Why do they operate that well? It, you know, it's less about, and people would always say like Google, um, because they have beanbags and coffee shops and all that sort of stuff and those sorts of things and open plan offices. And we've actually discovered since then that that's probably not the best way of working. But it's not necessarily about that stuff. It's about those little things that are done differently with respect to how they treat their employees how information goes out to the customers and all of those sorts of things. I have a really lovely, the daycare my son goes to, they have a really positive culture in there. And when you walk into the space, although there's children, small children everywhere and you never know what comes up, there's a bizarre calmness about it. Like you go in there and on a crazy afternoon, the kids are sitting down at the mat and the way the educators communicate with each other and the kids just, it's a really nice environment. And for me, walking in as a parent, I feel so comfortable having my child there and, and just the way they do business. And it's not a overly safe place, as in the fact that they don't haven't padded everything and all that sort of stuff. 
they allow the children freedom to experiment and understand risk, which is why my son's only got one tooth. But uh, <laughs> we, uh, it's, it's an interesting, it is an interesting thing. So you pull things like that. So I look at them about the way they communicate is a great example and the way they look at continuous improvement. It's something that they talk about all the time and they have meetings about and they bring and it's a great buy-in. Everyone's involved. And those sorts of bits, if you find a company or a couple of organisations that you like, you bring that into the place where you're going to talk about culture with your workforce and then you pretty much then say, well, what about these? Can we do this? Will this work for us? And do that sort of stuff because you don't need to reinvent the wheel over and over again and create something completely new because you're workforce can pull in from outside but then look at the diversity and the differences within your group that you're you have and pull bits and pieces from them because it it's not going to be I don't think an organization that are oh that's good let's just take that and copy it exactly because you will have different backgrounds different values and different history from your group so that might not work but you can definitely pull in and mold to your own if we shift, I guess, tracks now from larger groups or organisations down to sort of single pilot ops, uh, now I guess whether it's where you're detached and operating single pilot or you could just be yep. you know, a company of one where you have a helicopter and you go out and do contracting. Yeah. How does culture then work in between that sort of, um, if you take it down to that level? Yeah, I definitely it's definitely part of it like people there is that sort of single pilot mentality and they talk about you know i'm on my own i don't need to worry about anything but are you really on your own so you know if you think about any single pilot operation it's not just you doing it all like there's always somebody else there so i've got a there's a young guy who it's family friends of ours from home he's just bought he's got his first helicopter he's doing a crop dusting and spraying and things like that option over in Western Australia but he's he's got a whole range of people there's the guys that come and mix the fertilizer and bits and pieces like that for him there's guys there's the farmer there's the truck driver there's his refueler there's his laney that he needs to come in there's a whole bunch of raft of people so you're never actually on your own so there's a kind of bit of a cross between professionalism and looking at what that means and basically increasing your professionalism and the way you do business and culture. So the way you communicate is crucial as an individual operator because you don't have that rapport with people. You don't have the understanding of their backgrounds or who they are and things like that. So you might not have that as a single pilot operator. So you need to have a good strength and character and that sort of stuff to be able to communicate effectively with them. And it is about, it's almost, from an individual point of view, it's almost culture is professionalism, is actually having that ability to do all those things as you would do in a cultural organisation and be very self-disciplined as well. Like you brought that up when we were talking before, is that it's just, I think, self-discipline so crucial it's so easy potentially not to follow all the rules when you're by yourself because who you're accountable to you and that's something that you need to make sure of is you are accountable to you and your safety and those around you are your responsibility. And I think if people remember that as they go through a single pilot, that will set you up to have a, a good culture. And it's, again, about that feeling, about people will feel then comfortable and potentially be more confident in your ability to do your job if they know, feel that you are professional, you've got self-discipline and you 
set and you follow a good set of values. One of the stairs at our flight school has a couple of little sayings, but one of those build relationships. And I think what I was thinking of as you're going through there, especially as a, as a single pilot, where you're, inter- you're interacting with a lot of different people is you constantly want to be building that relationship with them. Um, and that, mm. I guess, becomes part of your personal culture as you mix between those different groups. Yeah, exactly. And, you, and it's a good thing, you know, you've, you've got an opportunity as a single operator to actually learn from people and see and just take those notes of, well, what that guy did, I don't like that. Um, what what she did, I'd really like that piece. I'll, I'll use that in mine. I'll do that. And you can actually mould your own into a, you know, to develop it as you go. And it will change and it will mend depending on the environment you're operating, depending on life, what's happening in your personal life and bits and pieces like that versus what's happening at work. And it means that then you have to understand that then if you then step from single pilot into a, a multi-crew or a, or a larger organisation, that you may need to bend and mould a little bit. I mean, I think it's if people who come in, and I think we talked about it, who, who don't want to change or aren't willing to at least accept and change a little bit with respect to the organisational culture and go in with what the bigger organisations see as a positive culture, then they're not a good fit. And it's about being a good fit. So even some people are not a good fit for a single pilot, you may have all guessed that I like to talk a lot, so I don't think <laughs> very well flying by myself. Um, I find it a bit dull. So I'm not being airborne, but flying around by myself, I'm like, wow, yeah. there's just no one to share this exciting stuff with. And, yeah, I just, um, yeah, so I'm not real well suited to single pilot, as in sole pilot, like sole operator, like yeah. no one else there. Um, me and a crew, a single pilot, as in I'm the only pilot of the aircraft and the rest of the crew, I'm fine with that. That's, that's fantastic. So, yeah, it's just, it is a different – and you will see what is a good fit for you and don't try and force yourself into being something that's not a good fit because then it will potentially create issues within the culture of the organisation you're joining. I was being a bit cheeky when I wrote these notes up, but, uh, yeah, coming from a flying school background, and, if, uh, and I'm sure there's other people from flying schools listening, but if we, uh, <laughs> if we get some free consulting off you for, for flying schools. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so – yeah, how would you attack it then, I guess, you know, with your instructing background or if you now, you know, put yourself in, a, in the shoes of someone who owns a flight school or as a CFI, how would you bring that in from scratch with what you know now in, in a training program for whether it's military or, or civilian schools? How would you start trying to build that culture for the students going through? Yeah, I, was, uh, I did look at that and have a giggle. But it's, um, it's one of those things that I think you need to start and it's about education and understanding. So it's something that we don't spend as much time as I think as we should on those non-tech skills and all those human factor skills and all those things that we talk about with human factors and stuff. We normally teach as a big bulk box and, and dump it on people um, and then they go out and maybe three or four years down the track, they go, oh, that's what they were talking about because it takes a while to understand it. Um, so you need to edu- educate your students on what a positive culture is be able to show them what one looks like. So therefore you need to make sure your instructors understand what the desired culture is and how they um, behave and that they have the confidence in the culture that they're looking to try and project onto their students. And they need to, so I, I thought about it when you said it to me, I thought about, you know, think of culture education as similar to instruction. So when I did my instructional stuff, and I don't know if you guys are the same, we do basically demo direct monitor. 
So, you know, you give a demonstration of, of what you want the student to do. They have a go with you talking through some keywords and then you sit back and monitor. And, you know, you could have more or less of those. You might need to go back to monitor or go back to demo, depending on how good the student is or not. Or, you know, if you look at it and you do the same thing for culture and you have it see, guide, do. So basically the students see what a positive culture does. They see people. So if you and your student have a, a minor incident or a process isn't followed or something happens because of distraction or whatever, you report it. So they see you do that. Then if something happens for them, you can guide them through doing something similar or speaking up about something or where a continuous improvement is. And then they can do it for themselves. So it's the same kind of concept. The biggest avoid is the prevent saying the do what I say, not what I do thing. Yep. Um, as many senior, potentially more experienced, and I've had that in my life, said, well, don't do it like this because this is how I do it. You've got to do it like that, like the book says. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and that's tough. So it's about having those checks and balances. So, yeah, so that's, I think, Having that education piece initially for a student, it will set your student up for a great career and understanding in their future. And then it also sets them up for an ability that if they step into an organisation post-flying training that doesn't have a positive culture and potentially is putting people at risk because of that with incidents and potential accidents and stuff like that, then they have an ability to have a voice to speak up and they're confident in speaking up. And that is, I think the biggest challenge is giving them the confidence to speak up when you go, actually, I don't like the way this is done either from a, you know, it could be from a from a harassment point of view, it could be from a risk management point of view, it could be from a pure aviation safety point of view or a WHS safety point of view. But they need to have, you have to give in a flight school the ability for your students to speak up. I think, I think that especially when they leave the a training organisation in, in that first job, I think that's the most dangerous part because it's such a, a hierarchical type thing and, yeah, uh, you, you know, you're after those first hours and I, I think it's just a super vulnerable time in that first job to get that experience when you can then start making a few more choices to, to raise your hand and, and make waves and things like that. Mm. It's, it's just... I, yeah, I really <laughs> feel, and I think that's just a, a really dangerous position often to, to move in. And I guess people just have to have that, it's easy to say moral courage, but yeah, I guess have a, a good benchmark to know that if something is going to be dangerous as opposed to just not optimal and be prepared to yeah. either yeah, speak up or, or walk away. But it's, yeah, can't downplay how difficult that would be in a, in a, in a brand new job. Yeah, exactly. And I, I wrote a little article on LinkedIn a little while ago and it's on my website about resilience and about speaking up and stuff. And I gave some advice to my daughter about it having some issues. And it, and some of that sort of stuff is, is part of it. And it's about, especially for flight school, setting that culture is that it's not, it's not also about being able to speak up. It's about how they say it. And it's being able to say it in a non-conference Educational way as much as possible, as in to allow them to have that confidence. So you're not going in there going, you like this, you know, this isn't right, rah, 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 and start doing that. It's more about like, you know, the way you're doing business. From my point of view, I've just stepped in, it's all very new to me, but I've just read all of this and this isn't being followed. Can you show me how, what you're following to do it the way you're doing it? And if and it's that kind of language that it means that then the person who they're showing goes, oh, well, it's not actually in there. 
and it might make them then go, oh, wait a minute, it's not in there. Um, I need to either amend what our documentation says or I need to then change what I'm doing. And it's just that I think it's a way you communicate it and it's a way you say it. The old I feel, in my opinion, these sorts of things and, and that sort of stuff. And then, you know, realistically, and it sounds tough and it would be tough, particularly when you're getting your first flying job and wanting to get out there and do it, is you need to be able to then say, we are not a good fit. I am not going to be happy working here and walk away. Like, But sometimes if you call people out and actually point out to them, because they've been in the organisation for so long, it's become part, their culture and the way they do it is so much part of them, they can't see it. So the best person in any organisation to point out where your culture might be negative or you're not following process or there's issues with it is someone who stepped in from outside. All in. I was going to say, all, all our Sorry. new hires, uh, yeah, our new hires are telling me exactly that. Say, look, I've been here uh, and I, I just can't see stuff anymore because I've been here for so long. So, you know, yep. while, while you're learning, uh, part of your biggest value to us as an organization is the fresh set of eyes that you bring in. Uh, so, yeah, please, you know, keep a book or, yep. or write down anything you see that's different because I'm in a situation now where I just can't see it. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's so important. And, and that's a great thing from your organisation to do that. So, so many organisations are afraid to do that. Like, we used to have a anonymous standards book. So, you could write it in. You didn't have to put, you could put your name in if you wanted to, but you didn't have to. You just write the comment in. Like, this instructor taught me this, but this instructor taught me this, which is, you know, contradictory. Just want a clarification on what's correct. Um and then you, and then the instructors can get together and they then answer all the questions in the standardisation book. And it's a really, you know, and if you, if you, and it allows people to have that feedback. And then you provide the feedback. Say, okay, we had this question. Uh, yep, apologies. It's actually this way. We've uh, re-standardised and done. Because as you said, when you've been in an organisation for, you know, 12 months, two years, three years, you don't see the little things that you're not doing that aren't complying because you don't necessarily get in and study those documents anymore whereas as a student all you do is study your books you study your books and you do all that and so you're the one who is most on top of all the new hires and stuff they're the ones who are most on top of process and procedure within the organization because they're the ones that have just studied it so it is great and it'd be awesome if all organizations would actually do that and say, you know, you guys are the new guys. Let us know if you see anything that doesn't fit with what we are trying to be, who we are and what the organisation is as a whole and who we're trying to project within the world. I mean, that is, especially if you get people from different backgrounds because they will see things differently and you need to actually use that and, and then you find that the company will then continuously approve and you will always then become that learning culture, you know, you'll develop, you'll become more flexible and you preview that resilience within the organisation. Awesome. I guess then let's, if we narrow back around to how you can help people out and and what you do in your day-to-day work. So what are the, some of the downsides? If, if people have got a toxic culture uh, there, whether they know it or not and, and don't do anything to address it, 
where is it going to lead the, the, the company or the organisation? You know, eventually I think you you will see a increased employee turnover or increased stress leave and people wanting to take time off or not wanting to be there. You know, people start turning up late potentially and you might just think, oh, it's just that person. But if you step back and look at it as a whole picture, you may go, well, why are they coming in late? Why have they changed? So especially if it's if it's toxic and they're not feeling comfortable, like it, it changes. And then people's productivity drops as well. So you don't, like I, I've been in places where I didn't like, like, not didn't like, but the boss and, and I disagreed significantly on a number of points. And I found it really challenging to get motivated to get to work and to do it. And I was lucky that there were some other people there that were really great that kind of allowed me to, you know, get through that. But it's, it is tough. We go through, and you'll see that particularly for any owner, any um, manager, supervisor. As you go through, you need to really um, know your people as they come in. Uh, have their behaviours changed? There be there might be a lack of confidence in business from clients and employees. So your clients, you might have a few issues with the clients. They might have they might have a bad customer service experience or something happened. But normally. I personally think that that's probably the last thing you see. The client relationship is probably the last thing that goes. The company will be a bit of a mess inside the walls before it gets looks messy outside. There'll be a, you'll miss opportunities if you have a toxic culture because you will miss the continuous improvement stuff and you'll potentially miss because your employees aren't engaged and aren't interested and because they're feeling like it's toxic and only certain people get stuff and they're not that sort of unfairness about the whole thing of what's happening you will miss so many potential opportunities out there of people actually speaking good about the company although we've got internet and all that sort of stuff and everything at our fingertips word of mouth is still sort of a massive you know bringer in of business for people so that's huge so you know so many times not to mention loss of time revenue reputation due to any incident accidents or providing as i said before about wih safety investigations and that just stuff you'll have a lack of cohesion within your workforce they won't communicate well there will be stifled conversation and it will just be about business and things like that and then go back through again to your last podcast about distractions they will increase frustrations will increase they'll start doing shortcuts there'll be a lack of attention to detail and things like that so if you've got a toxic culture in there, the biggest thing that happened and that I bring out of the seeking accident when I was part of it is the communication fell down. So the, the, the maintainers on the shop floor said we would, would say something like, we don't have the resources all the time to complete what you are asking us to do in the time frame. So they were basically saying, no, we can't do it. By the time it got to the, so that might have been the, the, the junior sailors on the floor would say that and then by the time it would get to the chief and it would be we don't think we're going to get it done in time and we need a few more resources then by the time it got to the engineer on the squadron to go to the CO it was uh, we're having a few problems with resources but we should be okay and then when it got to the CO it was um, resourcing is a bit of a challenge but and timing's tight, but we're okay. And then, therefore, by the time it got to the admiral who made the decision to actually send you, we're all good to go. So, you know, you will find that happens because, and that's the sort of thing that happens within a toxic culture because nobody wants to pass on any bad news and no one feels like they have a voice to provide reporting or getting any of that bad news out there. And that's 
what you don't want. If you have an organisation that will not listen, understand or hear the bad news and deal with it, then you will generally gradually implode. Right, not a good place to be. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, so do you want to talk a little bit more then about your company at the moment then and sort of any examples, again, without listing companies, but the sort of scenario of how you've been able to help people through that work? Yeah, so basically I, uh, from my fleet aviation safety off the time, I've really got into, and my time on 817 post the accident and things like that, we did a, started doing a lot of cultural and organisational culture and also individual resilience training. And I did a lot of safety investigation and safety accident management and auditing training through my fleet aviation safety off the time. So from that, I got a bit of a hook into basically safety and and what I want to do is try and help people and I try and say it as simply as possible, least words, it's a challenge for me, but um, simple things first to make the big changes. So as I said, like, you know, start with what I'd like to do is be able to go into an organisation and have a look at what regulations they needed to comply with. For example, whether it's an ISO standard, an Australian standard, whether it's work health and safety or aviation safety, have a look at those what they need to comply with and have a look and see if you're complying with it from an auditor's point of view and see where there's duplication. Like I said before about simplifying the processes, like seeing if we can cut stuff out if need be, seeing if one thing can actually cover so integrating systems a little bit more. And then from there, as you talk about the communication piece about how you then communicate to your workforce about what culture you'd like, um, how the new process is going to work, and actually improving it. We do a lot of training as leaders or as aircraft captains and things like that about communicating, but we don't actually do a lot of work on the sort of the support staff and the workers in a business, like it doesn't have to be aviation. We don't do a lot of work on how they can communicate up. And like I said, you know, as a first, you know, a new joiner at a, a, a company or something or, your, your, you know, your new recruits and things like that is they giving them the voice and actually training them, teaching them how to communicate that and how to bring that across is pretty important. So that's what I can do with that and it's about dividing that through. So I did some work with a larger company about developing an integrated safety management system and I went through and found there was, and I basically mapped across a board a whole bunch of things saying what the regulation was and all the documentations and references that actually referred to that. And it gave them a really big picture of, wow, we've got too many processes for people to follow and enable them then to go through and elect and and select ones to cull and reduce where they could. What I want to be able to do is understand what you need. So understand from a compliance point of view what you need. Then have a look at and sit down and talk about what culture are you after? What do you want the ultimate aim to be? You know, you can say things like good and bad. It's so nondescript. And even positive and negative, it's just about what do you want it to look like? What do you want your workforce to do? Do you want them to report incidents straight away? What type of incident you want to report? Okay, if that's what you want, then these are the steps you need to have in place and this is the feedback loop you need to do it. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that I think goes around that for culture. But it really is a, a, a communication piece. So I'd probably look to sit in with them um, and have a chat about it, see what they're at, and then... It would involve probably a couple of workshops and everyone often rolls their eyes, but I promise there'd probably be no PowerPoint and we'll just do a few exercises to talk about what the culture would be within your organisation and how to make it 
better and how to in, embody that continuous improvement and all of those human factors things that people like Sydney Decker and um, James Reason and stuff talk about and also Paul Salmon up at um, USQ. They, they talk some great stuff about human factors, but they always bring culture into their human factors. So I think that sort of part is what I can do to help. What's the, what's the name of the company, Natalie? Oh, sorry, Assimilated Safety. I know it sounds it sounds strange, but my my husband is a bit of a trekkie. So if anyone um, understands that, and it's um, it's a bit of uh, a, a kickback to that, but also nice. it's free on the domain. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So yeah, so Natalie's at, at info at assimiladesafety.com and you can uh, grab hold of Natalie. There. Yeah, other resources. Um, where else can people go to quickly get some more background on this? And you mentioned a couple of people there. So, uh, Sydney Decker, James Reason. So, if people wanted to jump online and look up more things, where would you send them to? Yeah, so Sydney Decker actually has a great online course on just culture. He's got a really nice series on that. Um, James Reason stuff is starting to get evolved and a little bit more outdated, but it's still very relevant. If you want to have a look at that, CASA actually has some really great educational resources on their um, website and so does Workspace Australia. So they've got, there's a bunch of safety organisations actually and there is one that's just been lost on the top of my mind at the moment, I'm just trying to find it. Um, the National Safety Council Australia, I think they're called, they've got some really great, they're a work health and safety organisation, they've got some great stuff on there as well To And they're just little resources about keys and tips about how to do things or understanding things like resilience and, and culture and risk management. So, you know, there's loads of resources out there and there's loads of companies that do all sorts of bits and pieces that can bring it together. The list would be endless, but I'll probably try and put some links and I'll, I'll put a blog onto my website with some of this stuff on there. I'll try and put some links to some of those resources on there so people can have a look to see how to get hold of them and, and just make it a simple one-page look versus a multiple-page search. Yeah, and if you send those through, what I'll do is I'll put them on the uh, blog post for this um, yeah, podcast okay. too so folks can, can listen to it there or we'll go click on the links. Last one or a couple of things there, but uh, Women in Aviation. So it's an Australian organisation, I think. And you were you secretary? What was your role with the, that organisation? So it's Women in Aviation International. So it's actually a international – it started in the U.S. But we've got an Australian chapter. So um, I'm the treasurer for the Australian chapter at the moment. Yep. So to add to the many things. And they, we basically aim to promote and improve diversity within the aviation industry. So it's not just about um, increasing female numbers. It's about actually broadening the aviation industry and providing enough, you know, professionals um, and tradespersons and whoever workers for the aviation industry into the future. So we hold a couple of conferences. Our last conference actually just happened, which was in Melbourne, and we will there'll potentially be another. So we do scholarships every year. So those scholarships vary from monetary values, which we have a couple of scholarship, uh, chapter scholarships up to $7,500 to provide for flying training or educational training. We gave some to one of the to do her university studies. We provided the money for that. We've also done for flying training and things there's also a bunch of scholarships for people to do even their avmed we've got a couple of tafe scholarships out there to get some tafe courses done and things like that so for engineering um laymen mechanics it's a great organization 
and it's very broad and very welcoming to whoever you are, regardless of your um, current employment, your gender, race, background, age. We don't care. We just want people who are interested in aviation, whatever that is, to come and join us and help promote the industry as a diverse and inclusive organisation, which is what we're trying to promote. There are still many areas that that is not, and all of us who are not the, and apologies to you, Mick, but the white male option um, who don't tick that box usually have faced something along our careers or our training and stuff that is not being probably as conducive to continuing within the aviation industry as you'd like to. So we're trying to be there for everybody to actually promote it and to try and educate the older generation about how you don't have to fit this mould to be within the aviation industry and to encourage more young, especially to young girls, even in primary school and high school, that to think about an aviation career before they start to select their subjects for university. And what's the website address for that one? waiaustralia.org. Waiaustralia.org. Awesome. Okay. And yeah, some scholarships on there. So yeah, definitely <laughs> every little bit helps when you when you start to learn to fly. So go check oh, out yeah. some scholarships. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, look, I, that's been super interesting. Again, it's one of those topics that we don't get uh, a chance often in the in the working day to sit down and, and think about by itself and sort of proactively do something there. So Natalie, thank you so much for, for sharing your time and insights on that. And uh, yeah, you've had quite a varied career. So it's great to have the, the sort of background to be able to talk about it. <laughs> Thanks very much. Appreciate your time. No worries. And again, yeah, if you're listening, head over to assimilatedsafety.com and you can find out a bit more information there about Natalie and, and uh, I'll grab some photos and put links up on the website and uh, they'll be yep, here definitely. on the, the podcast. And if you um, want to hear any information or you want to get in contact, just um, send me an email. Fantastic. Okay. All that info will be on the, on the post. Thanks, Natalie. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Nick. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that one more importantly though i hope there was something in there that you were able to connect with and see how you could take that back into your workplace and apply it there to influence in a hopefully positive way the uh, the culture for where you work i know i'll be looking to the idea of a standardization or continuous improvement feedback letterbox or a book depending on what format that takes uh, for our particular school the normal setup again for this episode on the on the website, you'll find the blog post there for this episode with a, a bunch of photos that Natalie has shared with me. You can see what Natalie looks like there and be able to put a, a face to the voice and get an idea of the different operations that Natalie was uh, deployed on. You'll also find there links for a, a number of resources for, for safety and for culture, as well as contact details for Natalie and her company. And that's over at rotarywingshow.com. Thanks again to the support crew helping the podcast out through Patreon and uh, chipping in for the hosting and the bandwidth costs. That's really appreciated. And if anyone's interested, you can find out a little bit more info about that at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. Wishing you all the very best over the Christmas and the New Year holiday period. <laughs>